I want you to think back for just a second, if you, if you can, to a time in your life, and maybe it's going on right now, but a time in your life where you were a part of something that you simply believed was completely unstoppable. And maybe it was a team, maybe it was a business, maybe it was some movement, maybe it was just a time in your life where you thought, nothing's going to stop us. We can't be slowed down. There's no, no obstacle, anything like that, that, that can get in our way that we can't overcome or that cannot be overcome by something. And I, when I was 12 years old, and this summer is the 20th anniversary of this particular team, the Prairie Village Expos out of the Prairie Village Little League, in Louisville, Kentucky, we went 15-0, and 0, and we were the best team. My dad and I still talk about it. You know, it's one of those things that the older you get, the better you were, that kind of deal. And so, so you know, my dad, of course, was self-proclaimed coach of the year that year, and I had to be something. I don't know. You know, I, I wasn't the best player on our team, so maybe I was like second MVP or something. The other guy was better than me, but we were unbelievable. And we still claim we're the best team that Prairie Village has ever seen. Now, I haven't seen a whole lot of teams after that, but we're the best. There's no question. We were, we were unstoppable. And even the game that we had a little bit of a hiccup, and, and we were taken into extra innings, and we won 7-6 to six in that extra inning, that wasn't a sign of our weakness. That was a sign of our unstoppability. Not even extra innings could stop us. And so no team was able to beat us that year. We were invincible and unstoppable. And maybe you've had experiences like that where the, the team or company or family or whatever it may have been that you were a part of, you just felt like this is unstoppable. The flip side of that is also true, that you've probably had experiences, and these are the ones that maybe hurt a little bit more, experiences where you were a part of something that was, instead of being unstoppable, was pretty inept. It was very stoppable. My childhood also featured a winless basketball season. Now, I'm not a basketball player, as you can tell, just by looking at me. I stopped growing in the eighth grade, and that was the end of my basketball career. But I was a part of a team that went 0-13, and it was miserable. And we had a few good players, but we just couldn't put it together. We were as stoppable as, as you could be. And so I played on an undefeated team, and I played on a winless team. And you, like me, have probably been a part of teams or organizations or situations or families or whatever it may be, that you've been on the unstoppable side, and you've been on the very stoppable side of that. Now, I... I know, and you would probably admit the same thing, it's much more fun to be a part of the unstoppable side. Winning is more fun. You know, they say that, you know, it's just fun to play the game. I, I, I agree to an extent. I think it's also really fun to win. I like that. It's more fun, more exciting, more fulfilling oftentimes to be a part of the side that's unstoppable in life, in sports, in business, whatever it may be. And, and so as we think about that today, the truth is we all want to be a part of something that's great. We all want our lives to count for something. Even if you're a person who up until this point, you look back and you say, I don't know that my life has really mattered much at all. You would still at your core say, I do want it to matter for something. From this point forward, I'd like my life to count for something. And we all want to be part of something that's worth living for. all want to be on the winning side. And over the next several weeks, what we're going to look at on Sunday mornings is is the only unstoppable movement that the world has ever known, that the world does know, and that the world will ever know. And God invites us to be a part of it and to see him work in some incredible ways. I want you to think about this for just a second on the flip side of being unstoppable, that oftentimes our churches today and the church as a whole, the entire body of Jesus Christ, seems very stoppable. 
There's a trend right now that is very evident, and I've not traveled to Europe, but some of you may know a little bit about it. In Europe, less than 5% of the people, aside from going to a funeral from now and then, less than 5% of the people ever set foot in the church. Now, we think, well, you know, yeah, that's because they're European. Well, they're different. They're, they're somehow unusual to us and so on. Catch this. In America, from the period of 1990 to 2004, there was a study done just a few years ago. And during that time, the population in the United States grew by 18%. So we increased our numbers as a whole. During the same period of time, 1990 to 2004, the percentage of people attending church decreased by 3%. So not only are we not keeping up with the population growth in America, we're losing ground. Had we seen 0% growth, we would still be 18% behind, but we are 21% behind where we were in 1990. The population is growing, but unfortunately the church is not. And I don't say the church, just as this church in particular, or any particular church in Murray or Callaway County or the state of Kentucky or any particular church in the United States, it's simply the church as a whole. But we are losing ground. And it may not seem like that sometimes, but studies show us that churches in general are losing ground. And keep in mind that that is despite massive church growth strategies that have come out in that period and continue till today. I have lots of books in my library about church growth. There are whole departments of seminaries and Bible colleges devoted to church growth. How can you increase the number of people in your church? What can the church do to thrive in today's world and so on? So we have declined as a whole despite all of those efforts. And so there's some sort of disconnect there, obviously. If the focus in many seminaries and Bible colleges is increasing the number of people, and yet the number of people is declining, and we've got some issues. And I think we have to come to grips with the fact that if we believe that the church, both as a whole, as the entire body of Christ, all Christians, and locally, particularly here as Elm Grove Baptist Church, if we believe that the church is the hope for the world, that that's the vehicle that Jesus is using to shine his light, to reach lost people, if we believe that, then according to these statistics, we've got to wake up. And not only just wake up, but aggressively get back to what Jesus had in mind for the people in his church. And if we're going to do that, and we've got one source The only source we can look to is not a seminary, not a Bible college, not a church growth strategy, not a book, but it's simply the Scripture, the Word of God. Because we've seen that books and departments of seminaries and Bible colleges may be advantageous to an extent, but they have fallen well short of reaching lost people for Jesus, and I would say largely because we have gotten away from what Jesus originally said and what He wanted to build His church on, which is the Word of God. And so... As we look over the next several weeks, we're going to use the Scripture as our foundation. I'm not going to go through a church growth strategy book with you. And in fact, my point in going through all of this as we look primarily over the next few weeks at the book of Acts, my point is not how many people can we cram in the door. My point is that if we experience growth, if God entrusts us with new people, my prayer and my heart desire is that any growth God adds will be legitimate that it will be based on true conversion, that it will be people whose lives have been changed. That's the growth that I believe God wants to bring. And so if he desires, and if he decides to entrust us with new people, I want us to be ready to see 
lives being changed. And so legitimate growth is what we're shooting for, not just mere numbers. And so if we think that the church is the the hope for the world, we need to go back to the Scripture to see what Jesus originally designed it to be and let that be our guide, our foundation. And we've got to be honest, no question. We've got to let the Scripture guide us and correct us if need be. And so I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. And for some, this may be a familiar passage. For others, you say, well, I've not really gotten that far in Matthew yet or whatever, and that's fine too. But Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. If you're not a Bible person and don't really know much about it, then don't let that stop you. The Bible's divided into two testaments, two halves, basically, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Matthew is the first book in the second half of the New Testament. The table of contents can point you to the way, and don't let that stop you. Don't be embarrassed whatsoever. If you didn't bring a Bible or if the translation that that we'll be reading from is a little bit different, you'll see it on the screen behind me. And in this passage, we we see an interesting conversation between Jesus and his disciples and one in particular. And so let's look at it in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Talking about himself. When When he says Son of Man, he's referring to himself. And so who do people say that I am? Verse 14, and they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. So there's a lot of different opinions about who Jesus is. Some thought that he was one of the prophets or John the Baptist reincarnated, come back to life. And here he is again, preaching all over again. In verse 15, but you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, he got this one right for once. If you know the story of Simon Peter in the, in the New Testament, he's always speaking first and Sometimes he's right and sometimes he's wrong, but he got this one right. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus responded, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I also say that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the forces of Hades. Some of your versions may say the gates of hell will not overpower it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. And he gave the disciples orders not to tell anyone, or to tell no one, rather, that he was the Messiah. Though we'll be looking at Acts chapters 1 and 2 primarily as we move forward over the next several weeks, this particular passage of Scripture gives us a hint toward what Jesus was aiming for and wanted his disciples to be about as they were used to build the church. And it highlights, I think, a unique partnership between Jesus and his followers. There, there is certainly uh, something that God does that is miraculous, and I, I struggle to understand why he would use us, but he does. He partners with us to build his kingdom. And this unique partnership is highlighted by simply this, that the church belongs to Jesus, but he uses people to build it. You'll see on the back of your bulletin if you'd like to follow along, if you're a fill-in-the-blank kind of person, then you can do that. Maybe that'll keep you awake and... Help you remember, you forget 80% of what you don't write down. Write it down. The church belongs to Jesus, but he uses people to build it. It's a unique partnership. He says, I will build my church. He doesn't say that I will build this church and and maybe it will belong to me and I may hand it off to you guys. No, he says, I will build my church, but Peter is used to build it. And certainly all the disciples and apostles, as we see through the book of Acts, We cannot deny the fact that Jesus uses people. They are not the foundation. They are not the owners of the church, but Jesus uses them. Peter plays the leading role through the first half of the book of Acts. And then Paul later on. And certainly today we know 
that Jesus uses people to build his church. And it's evident from the very beginning, and it still is today. And just because, and this is how the partnership plays out, just because the church belongs to Jesus doesn't mean we get to sit back and do nothing. Doesn't mean that we get to sit back and say, well, it's his church. I mean, if he's going to do something about it, certainly he will. He's God, for crying out loud. Shouldn't he just miraculously act? And we'll have all sorts of ministries, and people will fill the pews, and we'll reach lost people left and right. Hey, we'll just leave it up to God. Let me just get out of his way. Just because the church belongs to him doesn't mean that we have the right or the privilege of doing nothing. Because he has a unique partnership with us. We are, as the Bible says, his hands and feet. We are his mouthpiece. We are the body of Christ sent out to do his work. In order for your life to count, for it to matter, for it to be part of something unstoppable, the only way that that can happen is for you to join the movement that is the only unstoppable force the world has ever seen. And that is the church of Jesus Christ. Everything else will die. Everything else will fade out. But Jesus says the church is unstoppable. Not even the power of hell, primarily being death, can kill it off. Nothing can stop the church of Jesus. And he is building an unstoppable force for his glory, and we get to be a part of it. We get to be a part of it. And so because the church is unstoppable as Jesus is building it, and and because he is using people to do it, I think by implication... We then are called as being part of his church to be unstoppable as individuals, as an entire body of Christ, all those who call themselves Christians, and as a local body, Elm Grove Baptist Church, that God has put right here on State Route 94 East for a reason. We are called to be unstoppable, not merely to survive. We are called to be unstoppable. And so how can we do that? I'm glad you asked. And so we're going to learn today. Some of you are now awake again. That's good. Elbow somebody next to you, all right? We're going to learn today what it means for us to be unstoppable, both as individuals, as a body of Christ, and as a local body, Elm Grove Baptist Church. There are several principles I think we see, and first of all, we'll look at this passage in Matthew 16 and then the life of Jesus to see what they are. First, we see that we must believe in and imitate our founder. We must believe in and imitate our founder. The words of Peter here are particularly striking to me because Jesus had asked them in Matthew 16, who do people say that I am? What's the word on the street? What's my reputation? I've done all these amazing and crazy things, doing miracles and teaching some new stuff, and so what are people saying? Now, this is not Jesus being insecure and thinking, well, I wonder what they're thinking of me. I hope that everybody likes me and Boy, Jesus is not a people pleaser. If you read the New Testament, you realize that pretty quick. But he's wanting to know what's the word out there. And he's setting them up, obviously, because he wants to know, are they buying into popular thinking? Some people thought he was John the Baptist. Some people thought he was Elijah. Some people thought he was Jeremiah or just another great prophet. Then in verse 15, he puts it to him and he says, now, wait a minute. You've been following me around for two and a half years. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers him and says, you are the Messiah. Son of the living God. Peter put his trust in who Jesus really was, and he got it right. We must believe in, just as Peter did, believe in and then imitate our founder. Who do we really say that Jesus is? The truth is that what we really believe will be played out in our lives. 
not just what we say. Our behavior, our attitude, how we respond to the people in our lives, our mission in life will all be based upon what we truly believe. There's a, 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 when I was a kid, there was a a hallway that I would always walk down in my home church in Louisville. And as I was walking down this hallway, for whatever reason, I was fairly young. I was probably seven or eight years old. And it stuck in my mind that on one of the doors leading into one of the classrooms, there was just a little sign. And it was scattered throughout our church and different doors and all, but I, I just remember this one door. And this one quote was on this one door on this little sign, and it said this, and some of you may have heard this, we practice daily what we believe. The rest is just religious talk. We practice daily what we believe. The rest is just religious talk. And as a kid, that struck me. And first of all, I thought, what on earth does that mean? I didn't really know. As I've gotten older, I've realized what I really believe is what I live out. What's really in my heart is what is going to be expressed through my actions and my attitudes. The rest is just religious talk. It's just what I do on Sunday. It's just what I do on Wednesday. It's just what I do when I'm around church people. And so if we truly believe in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we then obviously will operate accordingly. If we truly believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world and that the church is his vehicle for saving the world, we'll operate accordingly. And if not, then we're simply, and I'm simply just talking. And so we must believe in exactly who he is. And if we believe in him, then I believe that we'll imitate what he has set up for us to do. We'll obey his call to imitate him. It's throughout the New Testament, and that's the only way that we can be a, a part of this unstoppable movement is if we will believe in him and as a result pattern our lives after him. And imitating Jesus be, begins with knowing really what he was about and knowing what he was training his disciples to be and to do. And throughout the New Testament, we get volumes of information through the words of Jesus and the words of others that make it easy to discover what Jesus was about. And I want to highlight for us just a few things that in believing and imitating Jesus, that we can look and very simply, very very easily see this is what he was about. This was why he was on earth. And so there are a few words, and you'll see as we go through this, that they're pretty simple. The first word that Jesus was about was the word submit. Because we're going to fulfill our call to be unstoppable. We've got to believe in him as the Savior of our lives and the Savior of the world and also imitate him. And he based his life largely on this idea of submission. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there. If not, then you'll see it on the screen behind me. In the book of John, chapter 4, verse 34, his disciples have just said, could we not have gotten him something to eat? And Jesus responds to them, and he says, my food, my sustenance, what I bank my life on, what fills me up, what gives me the energy I need, is to do the will of him who sent me, to finish his work, Jesus told them. And they said, well, don't you need something to eat? And he said, well, you're not getting it. Really what my life is about is about submitting to God, doing his will and finishing his work. Another familiar passage of Scripture may be for you in Matthew chapter 26. Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's he's on his knees before God, and he says this in Matthew 26, 39. Going a little further, he fell face down and prayed, and here's what he says. My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But what? Yet not as I will, but as you will. Always he was submissive to God. His life was about one thing. And that was doing the will of God for God's fame and God's glory. And in our lives, we've got to be the same way. 
In every area of our lives, we've got to submit that to whatever God would have. Think about it for just a second. If I'm honest with myself and honest with you, and if you were honest with yourself and honest with me, you probably could admit, just like I would have to, that there are probably a couple of areas in our lives that maybe aren't totally given over to God. Maybe the majority of it is, and you say, yeah, I I can, okay, I've got these compartments. They're all sort of released to God, and he can go anywhere he wants there and kind of correct or use or or whatever. But, you know, if I'm honest, a couple areas of my life that I really kind of kept my hold on. And maybe they're very evident to everybody else. Maybe everybody can see it. Maybe you know everybody can see it. Maybe it's in your work life, your home life, or whatever it may be, and, and, and you know and they know. But often it's those areas that nobody sees. It's those areas of life that we just say, you know what, that's, that's just that's my business. That's just, that's just personal to me. And, and maybe it's only you and God that know that. But, but Jesus gave us the example of submitting. And I believe that if we are to be a part of the unstoppable force that is the church Jesus is building, then the culture of us as individuals and the culture of us as a church has got to be one that starts with submission. God, no matter what, I release every part of my life to you. I may not like what you do at first, but I'm going to trust you. God, I'm going to let you clean out that part of my life. God, I'm going to trust you with this area of my life, even though I've never done it before, even though it's hard. And God, as a group, as a whole, as a church called Elm Grove, we are going to submit to you because it's your church, because you are our founder, because only you really know the best way for us to go. And if that is our culture, then we are on the road to being the people in the church that God wants us to be. Because if not, then who is it about? It's about us. And if it's about us, then it's not about God. And if it's not about God, then we don't have his power. And if we don't have his power, then we are completely ineffective. So it's got to be about him. And we start with submitting to him. And so maybe in your life and in my life, we begin by submitting those areas so that we have a culture here at Elm Grove that says we are in it for God and for his fame, for his glory, and we'll submit no matter what. And so it's not about what makes us comfortable as individuals. It's not about what makes us comfortable as a church. We're not building a museum here. Instead, we want God to build a hospital here at Elm Grove for broken lives, for people who desperately need him. Not so people can walk in and look at all the museum of, hey, look how holy we are, but we can say, look what God is doing here. Look who God is healing, who he's putting back together. Look whose life God has changed. And so in order to be that hospital, that rescue station for lost people, we have got to submit to Jesus for what he wants for us individually and collectively. Not only that, but Jesus not only submitted, but he served. It's a very powerful verse that Jesus himself says in Mark chapter 10. We'll look at a few verses here, one in particular. And Jesus in Mark chapter 10, verse 42, Jesus called them over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles dominate them. And their men of high positions exercise power over them. That's the way everybody else does it. He says, but it must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave to all. And before they would think, well, that's great for you to say. You ever have somebody tell you, well, do as I say, not as I do? Been there before? You ever tried to tell somebody that? Jesus follows it up in verse 45 and says, for even the Son of Man, even I, Jesus says, did not come to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus served, and we get it backwards sometimes. We, we sometimes think that life in the church is all about us and what we want and what makes us comfortable and what makes us happy and, and for us just to consume. And I have not been in ministry for a long, long time. But I've been in ministry and been in church long enough to know that many people, not all, but many, simply consume. Many people come to the church and, oh, isn't that great? Oh, give me some more of that. And, oh, what can, what can be done for me and so on? And I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes in particular, but I just say as American churches as a whole, we have adopted the consumer mentality that permeates our country. And instead of it being, how can I show up and serve somebody else? What can I do to plant my life and get involved? It's often about, well, I didn't like that. Well, that's not exactly for me. And I'm not so sure about that. And we consume and consume and consume, and it stops with us and never flows through us. Certainly, there is great value in coming each and every week and receiving from God whatever he wants to pass on. But it's not just for us. We are then called to serve as a result of that. And we must turn the focus to the needs of others. Consider how we can serve both inside and outside these church walls. We have so many people who serve our church on a regular basis. So understand, I'm not angry in any way. I'm not mad at anybody. I'm not mad at our church and nothing like that. We have so many people. I'm I'm overwhelmed most of the time to learn who else is doing something? I'm still learning that. Been here about a year and still learning. Well, this person does that. Really, I have no idea. Well, that person rotates in this group. I had no idea. I'm amazed to find out how many people volunteer and serve inside the walls of this church. Tonight, we're going to have an opportunity to honor those people. Realize I'm the only full-time employee of the church, which means that for the most part, everybody else volunteers. And so everybody else, we're going to honor you tonight. We're going to do our best we can to say thank you to send you off for another great year of service. Maybe some of you say, you know, I've been kind of sitting on the sidelines for a while, and, and you know, I, I want to do something. You realize that, that one of my theories is if you want people to stick around, give them something to do. You, you, ever, you ever been there? You feel like, well, nobody really knows me. I'm not really doing anything. What difference does it make if I'm there or not? If you want somebody to stick around, give them something to do. If you want your life to count, start doing something. You know that. It's common sense. So maybe tonight. If you're a person who's been sitting on the sidelines, you say, you know what, I don't know that I'm really ready to jump in with both feet yet, but I'm curious. We're going to be talking just tonight about what it is that we need to be about as volunteers at Elm Grove. And you'd get an idea. And you'd say, you know what, maybe. Maybe I'll start serving. We'll give you some people tonight that you can point to and say, maybe I'd like to get involved with that area of ministry. Hey, you'll know who they are. But inside the church, we have so many people who serve. And as I said, I just want to say thank you. And Maybe challenge some of us who are sitting on the fence. Am I going to get involved or not? Not only do we need to serve inside, not only did Jesus serve his disciples, but he served those who did not know him as well. And when we serve outside the walls, we just simply meet the needs of our community. We touch people where they are, at the ballpark, in our schools, community events, where people work, and so on. And that's our mission field. Think about it. Think about how many ball games take place in the summer in Murray, Kentucky. Think about how many events. I looked the other day at a community calendar. How many events go on? We've got an active community. There's a lot of stuff happening. We have several schools, one real close to us, others that are, that are close enough that if we somehow got involved in ministering to the administration, the teachers, serving them in some way, meeting their needs, helping them in any way, volunteering in some way for them, who knows what could happen? We can't build a sanctuary that's big enough 
to house all 30,000 people in Coway County. But through just the people that are here today, we can touch all 30,000 plus some. You realize that? Maybe for the first time you'd say, you know, I don't know. But we can't. Including our children, we've got about 200 people here today. You figure if each one of those 200 people is around approximately 10 to 15 people, maybe 20 on a weekly basis, and unless you're a complete hermit, you're probably going to come into contact with at least 10 to 12, maybe 15 or 20 people on a weekly basis. That covers Callaway County. It's covered. We can't build a sanctuary big enough to house everybody, but we can touch them all. There's a, a friend of mine who lives in North Georgia, and he's at a church where their, their goal, and they've accomplished it, their goal was to be the first call when the community had a crisis or a need. Not the civic groups, though they're valuable. I don't discount that whatsoever, but they wanted the church to be the first line of defense. Something goes wrong, they call the church. As a need, they need volunteers for an event. They call the church, and it's happening there. They are touching their community. There are 500,000 people within 10 miles of their church. Can't build a sanctuary big enough, but they're trying to touch them all. 30,000 people live in our county. We can't build a sanctuary big enough, and I'm not even sure we should, but we can touch them all. Serving, Jesus was all about it. He was also about sacrifice. In verse 45 of this same book here in chapter, in Mark chapter 10, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. His whole life pointed to the cross. He tried to tell his disciples. If you know the story, he kept telling them over and over, look, I'm going to be killed. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. It was like kids going back and forth. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I am. And then he died, and they think, what happened? He told them, my whole life is pointed that direction. That's where I'm going. I am here to sacrifice myself for the spiritual good of the whole world. His life was all about sacrifice. No price was too high for him, not even his own life. He did whatever it took to make people right with God. This wasn't some sideshow for him that he did only when he was going to get a thank you card or an applause or something like that. This was his whole life was all about sacrifice. When we imitate him in this, sometimes it simply starts with just the smallest, simple little things. And it starts with answering this question, is there room for one more? Is there room for one more? I've heard over the last few weeks, and I don't know all the names, and and, uh, certainly not going to try to embarrass anybody or call them out, but I know and I want to commend certain folks who you've walked in on a Sunday morning, and potentially even this morning, and somebody was in your seat. Now, I know we're creatures of habit, totally understand that. I sit in the same place every Sunday morning too. I understand, all right? Sometimes, though, we're creatures of territory, not just habit. And sometimes that's a difficult thing for us. But some of you have walked in over the last few weeks, and maybe even this morning, and you looked and somebody was there. And I have heard, and I'm not lying, I've had people come to me and say, this person willingly... And I'm telling you what, sometimes these are the hardest things. They're simple, but they're hard. Willingly gave up their seat for somebody they didn't know. You realize that in some way that mirrors the sacrifice that Jesus made for one more. If we've got a culture of people who say, you know what, yeah, I'm a creature of habit, and I kind of like sitting in the same place, but you know what, I don't care 
where I sit. Somebody shows up there in my seat. I'm going to shake their hand. I may sit next to them. I may sit somewhere else. I may freak everybody out and sit on the front row. But, but, but I'm willing to sacrifice no matter what for the one more that might come. And I just want to say thank you for those of you who have been in that situation. You say, you know what, it doesn't matter. You know, it's a little bit, you know, okay, I'm not used to this. But, you know, I'll do whatever it takes for the one more. Jesus was just like that. I thought about it this morning as I walked across the street from our home. And I thought, you know, our parking lot, and I haven't walked out lately. Let me, I don't, let me check. <clears throat> Almost full. Yep. There's one, I think. I, I want to throw this out there to you. Some of you are physically able and don't have young children where, where it wouldn't be dangerous. And maybe you'd say by an act of faith, I'm going to park across the street at the Parsons and free up a parking place. Not because we necessarily need it yet. Not because we can't find parking. There's still another parking place, but there's one more car could come in. But as an act of faith, as a believing in God for one more person, you know what? Hey, I'll park across the street. Don't worry about how it's going to affect my family. We'll figure it all out, all right? There's a little bit of grass on the side. There's a long driveway. and fit 10 or 15 cars there, no problem. What if? Those, I'm saying those are physical. You've got young kids. I'm not recommending this, okay? I've got young kids. I dig it. But, but what if? As an act of faith, just stepping out and say, God, you know what? I'm going to move across the street, and I'll walk if need be, and I'll pray for that open parking place. I'll pray that somebody, the one more, might find that open parking place. If they pull up and they don't say, well, there's nowhere to park, I'm leaving. They might say, you know what? There's room for one more here. For some, that's just earth-shattering. I realize that. I, you know, it's, but, but give it a shot. See what happens. Just, just see. And maybe as you walk across the street and you dodge the cars and all that, maybe you just pray, you know what, God? Hey, look, this is not about me, but whoever that one more is that's taking my spot in the parking lot, I pray that you bless them today. I pray they meet Jesus today. If we've got that kind of culture of sacrifice, watch out. Because God can show up then. And Jesus can build a church then. He sacrificed. Not only that, but he, as he says in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, he said he came to seek and save the lost. Now let's make no mistake about it up front. We cannot save anyone. I cannot come up with the fancy words to save anyone in particular. You cannot save anyone. Only Jesus Christ can save someone. But we must follow his example in seeking out those who need to be saved. Luke chapter 19 is, is a familiar passage for probably many of you because it's the story of Zacchaeus. And this is the closing verse in that passage. For even the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Do you realize that when he went to Zacchaeus' home, people didn't like it? Zacchaeus was not everybody's favorite son. He was not the guy that they rallied around and that they threw parades in his honor. In fact, they didn't want anything to do with him. He stole from them as a tax collector. And Jesus went to his house. You go to somebody's house in that day, it's not just like dropping by. That was a sign of friendship. I am your friend. Jesus was known in a derogatory fashion as a friend of sinners. He didn't wait for them to just find him. He went after them. Zacchaeus happened to be looking for Jesus that day, but Jesus was looking for him. And when he got to the point on the road where he knew Zacchaeus was in the tree, he said, hey, come on. Get down out of the tree. I've been looking for you too. Let's go to your house. And he said at the end of that passage, salvation has come to this house for the Son of Man came to seek and save 
The truth is that we cannot simply hang up a sign and say, they know where we are, they'll find us if they need us. It doesn't work that way. Jesus himself did not do that. He went to seek and to save those who were lost. I had the opportunity recently to have coffee with a very, very wise man who's been a member of this church a long time. I'll not mention his name so I don't embarrass him, but he had some tremendous insight, not only on this church, but just on this community as a whole. And I wanted to share that with you this morning. And here was his insight. He said 50 years ago, folks didn't have the transportation options that they have today. Folks didn't have the church options that they have today. And for the most part, churches in a rural community had it made. Because the people right around there had no opportunity, really, to go anywhere else. And so churches could become very complacent. And they could simply sit and wait for people to come to them and then do ministry as a result of that. But he said 50 years have passed, and that's not the culture today. Certainly in some ways our community still reflects that, but not in every way. And so as a result, he said the temptation is for rural churches that are sort of out in the county, just like ours, And understand this man's been a member here for a long, long time. He said the temptation is to become very complacent. And instead of seeking people, just sort of waiting on them. That didn't come from me. So you can't say, well, you're the city boy who's been here a year. And yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. It's true, though, isn't it? Wasn't it easy to become complacent just as individuals and say, well, you know, we've got this church building. Folks need something. They know where to call. I mean, our number's in the phone book. We've got a website. You know, we, we meet here every Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. We put some stuff on the sign. I mean, come on. That's part of it. We want to always be available for those who just simply find us. But I'll tell you this. If we are to see God really do something in our church, we've got to do both. Certainly waiting on those who will just find us, but also seeking out those who need to be found. And I appreciated the insight of this gentleman who shared that with me to say, you know what, that's a tremendous temptation. We don't want to fall into that. And so we seek and save, seek those who need to be saved rather. And then finally, Jesus was about being a shepherd to people. The entire chapter of John 10 basically talks about Jesus calling himself the good shepherd, the ideal shepherd, the one who cares for and looks after his flock and and feeds them and helps them out. And we know that this theme of God being a shepherd is also in the Old Testament. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And, And then the New Testament portrays Jesus as this shepherd. And the role that Jesus played on earth as a shepherd was not glamorous. In fact, he even said he had no place to lay his head. The guy was basically homeless for three years. Isaiah described him as just an ordinary-looking guy who was nothing that you'd be particularly drawn to, just sort of ordinary. His life was not glamorous. He traveled really very short distances, never went any more than about 30 miles from his hometown in his life. And so he was not the guy that we would know today that has the huge, booming church and all of that and is the Christian celebrity. He wasn't that. He was just Jesus, who was there to be a shepherd. And he was leading people who messed up. He was leading people who wandered off, and he was leading people who needed help. And just as the church, a biblical church, is an unstoppable force, a biblical church is also full of imperfect people. Next week, we're going to focus primarily on that and look at some of the people that were a part of that first church that Jesus sent into motion. They were completely imperfect. And I want to say to you, if you are a perfect person, please don't come next week because you're going to mess it all up. 
Because my whole thing is going to be that the church is full of imperfect people. And if you're perfect and show up, then I don't have anything to say. So please, help me out. Just take a break next week if you're perfect, okay? Don't elbow anybody, all right? Say, that's me. No. You know, we're full of, our church is full of imperfect people. And you know what? That's exactly the way that it has to be. That's the only way we're broken before God. But he shepherded those people. What will we do with the broken people God brings? What will we do with the people who are imperfect, just like us? Will we lead them even though they mess up, even though they wander off like sheep, even though they need help? We follow the Lord's example. We'll shepherd those people. All of this leads to a very simple truth, and it's this as we close. That God has not called us to merely survive, but to be unstoppable. God has not called us to merely survive as Elm Grove Baptist Church or as Christians, but to be unstoppable. And the question is, do we want to be? Do we want to be unstoppable? Is that what we want? The local church that God has planted, that Jesus leads, is the hope for the world. Do we believe it and do we operate accordingly? Nothing can stop the church that Jesus is building. Nothing, not even death or opposition. Nothing can stop it. And Jesus, don't miss this. Jesus is searching for people who will join him completely, who will submit, who will serve and sacrifice, who will seek out those who need to be saved and shepherd those people. He's searching for those folks to join him in this unstoppable mission. What will he find here? Will he find people willing and ready to be used by him no matter what. We find a church that says we are submitted to God. We don't care what that means. Jesus will never stop building his church. But there are times I do believe when he comes upon a people who are resistant, he moves on. I don't sense that we're resistant, but I don't want us to become that way. I hope that we'll always stay open to what God wants us to do. So that when Jesus shows up and he looks for those people who will join him, he doesn't move on to somebody else in another location. That he chooses us. And he says, this is where I will build an incredible force to reach this community. And just as the church is unstoppable and cannot be defeated even by death, there's some here who need to be faced with the truth and understand that the Bible says that not even death can defeat those who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ. But not even that can separate you from him. And if you've given your life to him, then you have the promise of eternal life forever. Jesus' whole life was focused on making you right with God. That's why he went to the cross. That's why he was raised again, so that we might be saved and have eternal life. And maybe today, you're a person who's ready to humble yourself and say, you know what? I need to admit to God that I'm far from him, that I've messed up and sinned and I need his forgiveness and I want him in my life. Maybe today you're ready to humble yourself and admit that. And in just a moment, we'll stand and sing a closing song and that'll be your opportunity to respond. So it's decision time between you and Jesus. Will you humble yourself and come to him? And maybe it's decision time between you and this church. Maybe you've been sitting for a while now and you just say, you know what? It's time. I I, want to partner with this church, with Elm Grove, to be the unstoppable force and to help build that here, to be used by God to reach our community. Maybe you'd say, this is the place. How do I do that? 
a couple of different ways you can join our church. One is by your salvation and baptism. To say, you know what, I'm asking the Lord into my life, and I want to follow him in baptism today. The other is just simply say, I've already given my life to Jesus, but I've never been baptized as an adult, as a believer. Maybe you say, you know, I was maybe sprinkled as a child or something like that, or, or maybe I didn't really follow in baptism, and, and that wasn't my decision. I want to take ownership for that today. We baptize here by immersion because we think that's the way Jesus was baptized. We follow his example, and it's a clear picture of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, and it also is a symbol of what's happened on the inside. We've died to all that old stuff, and we're raised again, the Bible says, to a brand new life. If you've never followed him in baptism, I just want to challenge you. Maybe consider that today. Consider that a step of obedience. Maybe if you're a child who's given your life to Jesus, you've been scared to death every week to come down that aisle, maybe today. Maybe today you'd say, you know what, I know I'm a believer in Jesus. I'm going to follow him in baptism. Or another way is by simply transferring your membership from another church and say, look, I've been a part of this church, and yes, I've been saved and baptized there, but I, I want to join this church. And So it's decision time also for that and also for us and the call of God for us to be unstoppable. And as we pray and sing in just a minute, maybe you would be a person who would say, even if I come alone today, And I'm going to come and I'm going to get before God. And I'm going to beg him not to pass us by. I'm going to beg him to make us a people willing and ready to do whatever he wants. And I'm going to pray that God would find a people here he can use. So maybe that would be your response today to just get on your knees before God and to pray, Lord, use us, raise us up, make Elm Grove the place that you begin to work. And so as we respond this morning, we won't linger real long. We're not going to take forever. But maybe you need to do business with God. I'll be standing right here down front. If you've got a prayer need or if you'd like to give your life to Jesus or join this church, I'd be happy to talk with you, as would any of the leaders in the church. And so as we pray and close, don't miss what God is calling you to do today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thankful for your word, thankful for your desire, far outpaces ours to make us an unstoppable part of your unstoppable church. So, Lord, I pray today that those who need to give their lives to you would find the courage, would humble themselves and do so. For those who need to be baptized or maybe join this church, that you would release us from those seats to walk that aisle and say, that's what I want to do. God, ultimately, we pray that you would find here a people that continue to be used by you, who want nothing more than to see this community changed forever and for us to be able to be a part of that. So, God, use us. Help us to see how we can serve and sacrifice, how we can seek out and be a part of the lives of people who need to be saved. And, Lord, for those who are here, help us to shepherd and to guide them as best we can. We thank you for your love for us that's never-ending, and for your sacrifice on the cross that gives us new life. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.